0: Hello and welcome to Meta Station. I'm Claire. I'm a 34 year old writer in Portland, and my favorite character on the show is Kane.
1: I didn't know what we were doing favorite characters this time.
0: I'm freestyling.
1: <laughs> ah, um, I'm Erin. I'm a 33-year-old English
0: professor in Mississippi, and my favorite character is Bellamy. And today we are talking about episode 310, Fallen. So first up on the agenda for today is Polis with Murphy and Antari. Let's discuss.
1: So one question I have about this week is what exactly is this storyline building up to? Because I feel right. like... This week is one of those weeks where that is the storyline that is like on a kind of slow burn. Mm -hmm. If not, it's not like really in a holding pattern, but it's moving. It's only moving very slowly. I think kind of waiting for other pieces to come in or or other, basically other characters to show up. I think. And so like, I, I think it might help to sort of stop and try to figure out what exactly they are trying to do with it, that might actually be the best thing to do with almost everything in this I episode. I think that's a really good
0: point, actually, because <laughs> um, that's the big question. Because is, is not at all clear. <laughs> right, right. Are we on the same side about what you were trying to do here? Yes or no? So one of the pieces that I'm the most interested in in this storyline that felt like, I think the clearest example of a thing that we're waiting for the payoff of is there's kind of like, a throwaway reference to like the reason that Rowan isn't there is he's like looking for the flame.
1: So I mean, I think it's important. Like one thing I think maybe that might come up later is that you know Rowan knows about Nyla, and he knows that right. like, Clark knows about Nyla. So if he, so so I mean, I think the fact that they're all going back to to Nyla, that might be a point where these things kind of converge. We might see Rowan show up. To Nyla's trading post At some point Maybe late next episode You know To like confront Clark And then probably I wouldn't be surprised If she told him about Luna And he was like He wound up going with her
0: that's kind of what um, i'm what i'm thinking slash hoping because Antari does not seem particularly fond of rowan and and it and it was yeah. an interesting running thread throughout this episode and one of the things that got me really excited about the murphy ontari you know burgeoning alliance which then ended horribly which we'll get to in a second but but what i like <laughs> what i liked about where it appeared that that was going was that they're sort of presented to us as though like ice nation's a united front And they're clearly not. Rowan and Naya were not a united front. They had a very complicated relationship and they weren't always on the same side. And Ontari and Rowan are presented sort of similarly that, you know, she's there for the conclave and he's there to back her up. And yet every time Murphy sort of makes a comment about like that it's clear that Rowan doesn't actually trust her. Like Rowan is basically like, (laughs) stay in your room. Don't say anything to anybody until I get back to deal with this. So I think the idea of the two of them not being on the same side and of Ontario the pretender, like you mentioned last week, trying to sort of hold on to her throne through trickery with Murphy sort of at her side is an interesting contrast to Rowan's genuine respect for Clark and I think genuine trust of her judgment. So, so I think that one interesting thing that the narrative is attempting to try to do in that storyline is to effectively remove our perception that Ice Nation has a unified agenda or goals and that Ontari and Rowan are yeah. like all these other people in the show have their own things that they want are using each other strategically but are not so allied to each other that that can't have a wedge sort of driven between it and, and the question of what happens next is really interesting but I liked getting to see a side of Antari that was a bit more three-dimensional than we've had before
1: I agree. And like, it kind of fits into that sort of theme that we're seeing emerging out of 3A, which is a kind of splintering of the grounder society and also of Arcadia. So, you know, we have like splintering happening within grounders with the ambassadors against the new commander, you know, like that kind of like smooth line of of succession has been broken and it's starting to crumble. And then we also saw that this week, too, with Bellamy turning on Pike and Pike getting turned over by his people to the grounders, you know, and then also, you know, with... um with jaha rising to power in arcadia with ali there's a kind of like splintering that's happening and a and a fracturing and a breaking down that seems to be sort of like consistent across all the storylines and yeah i think you're right to sort of point to antari and the like the fissures within not only just like in polis but also fissures within clans as being a part of that like this is yeah. where things are going to break down are at these kind of basic levels of allegiance like personal allegiance or personal non-allegiance you right, know what i mean right if you think about where all those fissures are happening and all those storylines, they're all happening along the lines of who has a personal allegiance to whom. I think you're right.
0: That's been an interesting sort of macro trend throughout the whole season. You know, I, And I think that the the question that keeps coming up of where we all make choices based on the people that we care about or the people that we need things from versus holding on to these kind of abstract notions of the way that our people have always done things. One of the things that I found interesting in Surprising in the way that we sort of delved into Antari's backstory with like how shitty her upbringing was and her being you know taken away from her parents when she was a baby to be raised by Naya, which opens up some interesting questions about how long Naya has been scheming and through how many commanders. So the the fact that there seems to be no personal loyalty between not just Antari and Rowan but also between Antari and Naya, given. Sort of how shitty her childhood was. And, and the fact that Naya's clearly been scheming for a long time to have her own like secret nightblood on the throne is interesting because that's all, yeah. that's all new information, but it isn't set up in any way necessarily that Antari has personal loyalty to either Rowan or Naya, except just that they got her on the throne, but that she could pretty easily be, I think, turned by Murphy into sort of like a rogue agent who's only out for herself. Like Murphy is, and that yeah. could be really well, in interesting. And in they
1: yeah, exactly, I was, was going to say, in that in that sense, they are like perfect for each other. Because yeah, neither both of them are just sort of like sheer pragmatist, you know, so like sociopath, like whatever gets you your goal for that moment is what you're going to do, and like neither of them have. Well, I mean, like, Murphy has a personal allegiance now to Emery, insofar as he has one to anybody, but he, like, he doesn't really feel any allegiance to the Sky People, maybe kind of loosely, but not, he's not going to start talking about his people. Like, that's never going to happen for yeah. him or Antari. In that sense, they're kind of perfect for each other, and scary in that way, because they can and will do anything. Like, Antari seems like, you know, her entire life has been shaped to reach this moment. You know, right. It's the only goal that she's ever had, so even though she hated Naya, clearly, and she doesn't really seem to have any sense of why she's wants to be the commander other than she lost everything in her life in order to be that. And so you have a situation where you have like two people who have basically nothing to lose. Antari is either the commander or she's nothing. She and she has nothing. They also um two characters who have no reverence for you know tradition or honor or any of those kinds of things. So this is the only thing that she has that she's ever had. So she will do anything for it. Murphy has ever had anything. He will do anything to survive. <laughs> and now I have a Hamilton song stuck in my head. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, much faster than Hamilton reference this time. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's like, I mean, I think they're really, really fascinating characters, like to put together and sort of yeah. bounce off with each other and then sort of like, and to put them in this situation, just like watch them, watch and see what they blow up, you know? Right, like, right. Like they could together, you know, just like destroy, everything and but i think like antari is interesting because i think like maybe one little difference between them you know antari is like so volatile and 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 i think that's clearly because she has nothing but this commandership, so mm-hmm. this is what she's gonna cling to murphy does have a little something to hang on to like he has emory that he's trying to get back to right i think he has some degree of awareness that the sky people are kind of his people and i sort of wonder if clark you know like calling him her friend
0: and he says to her like i'm sorry i know how much she meant to you like they have a lovely little totally unexpected sort of human moment at the top of the previous episode when they're stuck in that room together where you (laughs) without anyone telling him but using you know context clues murphy has put together the whole story of whatever happened between clark and lexa and that Clark is grieving. They've been separated for such a long time, doing their own sort of separate storyline things, and you sort of forget how long it's been since they saw each other and how much they've each been through since then. I think they're both just so happy to see somebody from that world. So I think that there is a little bit of, not to the adults, certainly, of the Sky People, and not to necessarily every single one of the delinquents, but to a handful of them, I do think that Murphy feels some sort of, if not allegiance, but like some kind of a relationship. So it was interesting to me, you know, with, with Murphy in season one being the uber violent, just kill everybody guy who constantly had to be reined in by everybody else. It was a really interesting flip and sort of showing how much he's grown as a person, both to have him... Be the person telling Ontari like you can't just kill everybody that like that's not a smart plan, and also to be the person sort of saying no to her sexual advances him him having qualms about cheating on Amori, you know with Ontari. And him being like, hey, let's like put our swords back in the holster and like talk this through is an interesting new place to see him. And I think what's interesting is I think that yeah. we're seeing elements of Murphy being really shaped by being stuck alone for so long. The desire for human connection and companionship and and being forced for such a long time, you know, for a crazy making length of time to go without it. And then for even a while after that, to have nobody but Jaha. I just think it's it's interesting throwing him into a situation with a new person or a new group of people And seeing that he's not just adapting to survive, but that Murphy needs human connection more than I think maybe he thought he did. I was really hopeful about this relationship. I was really, I was, you know, I was starting to low key ship it already. (laughs) And I was, I was interested in how sort of perfect it was to have Montari, the fake commander, with Murphy as her fake flamekeeper sort of scheming together. Although I do think this is a good place to bring up the major plot hole, which is how the hell does anybody know if she gets the names of the former commanders right? Like, either the names of the former commanders are so super, super top secret that only the flamekeeper knows if you get them correctly because you don't know them until the thing is in your head. In which case, how the hell are the ambassadors going to know if she got the names right? Or they're like some degree of public information and people who are ambassadors or have other high-level positions know this, which means it's the kind of thing that Naya should have incorporated into her plan. Like, Naya, just ask your own ambassador then. Like, you guys can bluff your way out of this a little better, I think. So then it's all looking like this could be totally delightful and super great and like a fun, new, weird twist both for the characters. And then after, you know, Antari gouges out a dude's eye, but manages, I think we're meant to believe, manages to successfully get everyone to back off. So like temporarily, at least her position is secure. Then it all goes to hell. So let's talk about the last scene. Oh god,
1: <laughs> which I just yeah, like the last two scenes in that plot line—the eye gouging and then the rape—just right, like you know, it was like going along fine, and then suddenly it was like it became Game of Thrones yeah, again, for, again for like no apparent reason. And I can't figure out, you know, like the the scene at the end—I I can't figure out what it's supposed to be doing, you know. And I think it's one of those things again. This is where this is where we have a, a problem with. It's really almost – it's so hard, almost impossible to tell whose side we're supposed to be on Yeah. In the narrative in that yeah. scene and what the tone is supposed to be. I sort of have two sides. Like, on the one hand, like, that is straight up a rape scene. Like, there's no debate about that. But it's played, you know, sexily, jokily in that way right. where it's supposed to be like, oh, well, you know, like, he has a girlfriend, but what man can say no to sex? So I think there's a way you can read it where, the, you know, another one of the sort of like thematic patterns across at least this uh, alley plot and this Polis plot. There's a way that, that the episode is all about coercive consent, about people right, being right. forced to give up their free will to a kind of like corrupt and corrupting power. So I think there's a way that you can read the murphy Antari scene. If you're reading it as a rape, if you're reading it so that we we as an audience are supposed to think that it's a rape, right, right. then you can look at that and see and and look at the parallels between Antari and Jaha as right. two people who are sort of like mad on power and interested only in securing power and control over people who've sort of like lost track of the more benevolent aspects of what is supposed to be their role and just want to secure power over people. you know if you, if you're sort of looking at that parallel, then that scene with Murphy and Antari. Is the moment where Antari sort of forces Murphy to submit to her and give up his free will in order to survive. That's kind of like parallel to Abby giving up her free will to Allie. And so, but but the problem is, like, so, so okay, so, like, but the problem is that that reading of the Murphy-Antari scene does not at all fit the
0: way, like, the tone of the scene that they put on the screen. That was like, my I problem th- with it, was I wanted yeah. to be, I wanted it because of the beginning. So, okay, so, so the way that scene begins, where she puts him right back in his chains, and he's like, what yeah. the fuck, like, yeah. I just tried, like, I totally proved my loyalty to you, and she's like, whatever, you know, and then she's trying to sort of, like, lure him in, and he's, and he's saying no in a bunch of different ways. When she's overtly threatening, I was thinking like, okay, so we're meant to put Murphy in the Abby position in this storyline. And yet the fact that his last line is like, well, the things I got to do to survive. I was like, wait, 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 am I supposed to be laughing at this? Like, it wasn't even just that the tone was weird. It was like, there was like five different tones happening. Like, at first, she's genuinely frightening and and is overriding his trying to, you know, like, lay down some boundaries. And then it's, like, shot on her very seductively with her, like, unbuttoning her pants and, like, the lighting's all sort of warm. And then he kind of just, like, shrugs and gives in. My question then becomes, I'm completely on board with the idea of the connective thread between all three of these plots being... People rising to power on the backs of taking everyone else's free will because it is a unifying thing in all of these plots, and it is an interesting thing to parallel all the different ways that that's happening, and yeah. and how are our heroes going to get out of those situations? Yeah,
1: and honestly, I I, I kind of like hope that that's it. And I, I do too. This, like, I think this is why this episode, even though I liked it much better the second time through, Me too. why it's so yeah. so frustrating. Yeah, because it's one of those episodes where it's like. Doing so great, so great. And then there's like one thing that is just yeah. like in every storyline, at least that is just yeah. like, and pulls it pulls you right you out, out of it. Yeah. Just pulls you right out. And like, yeah. t- it's just like not working. And this is, this is the tone of like the way that that scene is shot yeah. as a sex scene yes. rather than a rape scene, rather than a coercive scene right. is what fucks it up. And I, and I honestly cannot tell what they were doing. If, if the answer is it wasn't supposed to be a scene of coercion to parallel the other scenes of coercion in the episode, I have zero idea what it was doing in this episode yeah. like it makes no sense but but if you read it as a scene of coercive consent to parallel the others, then the tone makes no sense. So it's like, did, did everyone just like lose their mind in post, you know, and like they're editing it and they're like, Whoa, we're just going to, wow, this is sexy. Let's just make this sexy. And they like, just, I have no clue. I want to read it that way because I think it does make the sort of like overarching theme clearer. Yeah. It makes a series of parallels regarding power that are much more satisfying. Yeah. This is my problem. Like I want to believe this is what they're doing and this is deliberate, but I, there's enough stuff that doesn't really work. I can't quite give it to them. You know, yeah, I can't quite yeah. be like, this isn't just me, like, right. it the way that I would like <laughs> it to be rather than what it actually is. Right. But I th- there's also like a theme there. I think that that unifies all three of, okay. in in the case of Ali and Jaha, what, at a fundamental level, what we're seeing is Jaha perverting a benevolent cause and using it to gain power. Right. So the idea is that what they want for everyone is to be in the city of light because that's what's best for everyone. And so Jaha has decided that is best for everyone. Full stop. So anything that they do to get people to what's best for them is justified. Right. Right. That kind of like, if you, if you think it's right, it's right theme. And so like, That would seem to be, like, the way that they set that up would seem to be a really nice kind of way of showing, like, push to its extreme, this is what happens with this ether, with this idea. Right. Like, if you think it's best, then whatever you got to do to get there, right? So they wind up, it's like this kind of horror story about someone being willing to revoke free will in order to force people to do something because you've decided it's best. And that has like a number of like nice resonances with the Bellamy storyline in terms of and also with like Hannah and Monty, you know, because right. like you could look at that the deal that, that Hannah made with Pike as another case of coercive consent. So we have you know Jaha kind of being like I'm taking away your free will for your own good coercive yeah. consent. You have some of that with Monty and Hannah. So like I want to sort of see the Antari Murphy scene being a similar sort of thing where we're supposed to look at Antari and say. This is another form of coercion right. that is just a, an example of how absolute power corrupting absolutely, you right. know, like, and the difference kind of being that Antari doesn't really care what's ever best for everybody. She cares what's best for her. Right. But she's willing to sort of, like, coerce to get it. And, like, and she uses force in those ways, too. And, yes. I, like, and I, the other reason, I, I, like, I love to read it in that way. I think in that reading, Bellamy comes off way better than he does otherwise because he was so the too. only person who refuses that coercion it's bellamy maybe that's the reason why we get that weird scene because like that whole thing is just like so muddled and weird but where they're marching through the woods you know till uh, bellamy's leading pike astray and we all know that bellamy has a plan right like it's very right. obvious that bellamy's plan from the beginning was not to lead him to the cave yeah we have that weird scene where he asks pike what will happen to octavio when they get back to arcadia and the first time through i was like oh no maybe he doesn't have a plan you know because he's asking and the second time through i was like what's a bizarre thing to ask so he so like there's a couple ways to look at that like maybe i was trying to figure out like when does when does bellamy really have the plan i'm pretty sure he has the plan from the beginning i think so too even if he doesn't even if he was on the fence until that moment what happens in that moment pike says if you cooperate with me your sister will be safe and Bellamy turns him in anyway. Let's say that was a moment of doubt. Let's say like like Bellamy is marching through the woods and he can, and he has this plan. He knows he can do this plan, but he's not sure it's going to work. And he's trying to like make a final decision. So he asks Pike, "What's going to be the outcome?" And Pike tells him what he wants to hear. And Bellamy still says no. Bellamy still turns Pike in, which yeah. is the riskier thing. They all could have died rather than take them back to Arcadia, put Pike back in power. What is he saying? You know, like, I'll make sure she stays in line, my sister with my responsibility. He refuses that. He is the only character who's presented with a kind of, you play ball and I'll give you what you want, sort of impossible situation choice. And he does not play ball.
0: I think he had that plan from the beginning. I think that from the moment- I think so too. From the moment that Pike said, shoot Octavia in the kneecap if she doesn't let him go. And Bellamy is like, wait a minute- And he starts bluffing, and I don't know at what point in that conversation this specific idea comes to him, but, like, they were talking about the blockade in that earlier scene, and we we cut to Bellamy listening. So I think he had it from the beginning, and I think what's interesting in, like, what you said about that he is the one who chooses against being coerced is that he very carefully plays the role of somebody who is. That is exactly what you would expect Bellamy to say. In every one of those mm-hmm. moments, Bellamy played the role of Bellamy perfectly. And he and maybe he even had this plan before When they said, we'll take him as a hostage. I mean, maybe he was already thinking of a way to get out of it because everything that he does is so stereotypically Bellamy that it is exactly the kind of behavior that Pike would comfortably expect. In some ways, the interesting commentary on the coercive consent is how beautifully Bellamy plays into both for Pike and I'm sure for probably some people in the audience to create that sense of our total confidence that he is Pike's right hand man again. Until until the yeah. moment that it is revealed that he isn't, until we hear those grounder horns, and, and it just
1: think they gave us that scene where he asked about the
0: consequences of Octavia.
1: Like now that yeah. so that was really confusing. I think it has to be to tell us what he chose against. Yes,
0: I think that narratively, for the benefit of the audience, it's a misdirect. It's the exact question that Bellamy would ask. Bellamy would want to know well, the terms of the deal. Before he said yes to the deal. And Pike's like, here's the deal. And Bellamy's like, Great. And then he says yeah. like the sacred sister line, which yeah, at, which first felt weird there. I was just like, Oh, yeah. I don't I don't like yeah. it being used in that like creepy taking away Octavius agency kind of way. But I also yeah. feel like again, like this is Bellamy playing the role of Bellamy, and that's the right line for that moment. Narratively, it plays
1: a dual role of being first a Mr. X. Right, you know. But then also, I think later on, that question that Kane asks at the end, right. was this because for your sister? Or was this because it was right? Right. And I think that scene tells us that the answer cannot be it was just
0: for Octavia. Right. Because
1: if it was just for Octavia, he would have been like, cool, good deal. Let's go yeah. back to the Cain. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about Bellamy and Kane because the biggest change for me, watching it the first time versus watching it the second time, and having had a couple days to think about it, I still feel like this fits into the pattern we were talking about before, where like my big problem is I'm not sure which character side the narrative is actually on at all moments. There are two places where Kane's behavior towards Bellamy is disturbing. And this is the first of them, which is that Kane allowing the fight to happen. And, and then at the end, Kane behaving as though he doesn't trust Bellamy's motivations. Yeah. I, I absolutely love Kane and I love Kane and Bellamy's relationship. And so, first watching it, I found those moments horrible because I was holding on to Kane being the person whose faith in Bellamy was going to be the one thing that wasn't shaken after he lost Clark, after yeah. he lost Octavia. Kane. Cain believes in him. Like Cain is going to have his back. And and those moments felt so jarringly like he didn't. And I think watching it a second time, I feel like the part in the cave, I want to believe and I think that I'm right. The narrative is not on Cain's side or Octavia's side in that cave scene. And I think that's why we get those little moments from Miller and Harper, who have that sort of Vox Populi role, I think, in that scene. I think Octavia and Kane are too angry to be objective. We're given such a, I think, just excruciatingly and way too excessively close up on, like, Bellamy bleeding, on Bellamy's, like, Sad broken face. Like I think we're meant in that moment to have empathy for Bellamy who wanted so badly to fix this and nobody will let him fix it. And Kane and Octavia won't even given the time of day. And so Bellamy telling everyone to back off, to let Octavia to sort of wail on him and Kane allowing it to happen, you know, Cain kind of walking away and turning his back, I think not being able to watch it, but permitting it to happen, which at first felt like, it's like, dad, what are you doing? <laughs> Like that's like the horrible, but I think the arc of Bellamy overall of this season and particularly of Bellamy's relationship with Kane is I think that Kane is trying to move Bellamy from a subjective to an objective morality. The beginning scene, I think he's sort of, he's just mad everyone's mad and they're scared and Lincoln has just died. And I don't think that we're meant to take anything that happens in that scene that's directed punitively towards Bellamy as though the narrative is necessarily excusing that, but I feel like that isn't clear. And so that might also just be me wanting to believe that, you know, and Kane's like, he's the enemy, but like we get shots that tell us that doesn't sit right with Miller and Brian. And Harper is the only person who asks the important question What if Monty is also a trap? Like Harper's the only one who brings up the fact that like Monty also was once not on their side. I guess the second time around, I felt like it's awful to watch, but I felt like that moment was shot to put us narratively in a tremendous position of empathy for Bellamy, who is helpless, who's chained up, who wanted to help. the whole reason he got... You know, tranquilized and locked up and be up in the first place was because he wanted to help. And then in terms of the last scene in that moment where Kane asks him, you know, did you, did you do this because it was right or did you do this for Octavia? And Bellamy's kind of like, you're welcome. And then Kane's like, Hey, and like grabs his arm. So it's basically like, it matters. And until you realize that you'll still be lost. I think it is a weirdly written moment. I don't like Bellamy's response being flippant yeah. and I don't like the arm grab because those two moments make it feel like Bellamy and Kane have temporarily been possessed by like their season 1 selves for like a minute. And it feels it feels (laughs) jarring. It's like you two have been through too much with each other. Like, I know you're mad. Like, I know Kane is mad at the things Bellamy did. And I know Bellamy is feeling sort of hurt and indignant that he still hasn't won everyone's trust back. And like, those are valid. But also it sort of felt like I don't think this is how these two men now talk to each other. But the line about where Kane is pushing him to be like, why did you do this? I felt like watching it the second time, and maybe this is how Ian played it. Maybe this is just me just desperately holding on to any hope. But the second time around, I felt like that in some ways is Kane trying to tell him, like, you did the right thing. Like, you do have a moral compass. You do know what the right thing is. You're the one that needs to understand that. You're going to be lost. Ah. Like you're not going to know who you are or which direction you're headed until you understand that you do have a right and a wrong. Because I think that Kane understands better than I think anyone else in the, in the whole show and certainly anyone in Bellamy's orbit about punishing yourself for the things that you did and believing that you're a monster. He was deeply fucked up after the culling and that has stayed with him and I think that I think he has a degree of compassion towards Bellamy, even as angry as he is, that no one else is capable of having because no one else has been through the same kind of thing. I think that Cain wants Bellamy to give himself... Bellamy did the right thing, and he didn't do it just for Octavia. He did it as much for Cain and everybody else, and he single-handedly saved Arcadia, basically. Like, he ended the blockade himself. And part yeah, of me yeah, sort yeah. of feels like, like, does Kane want Bellamy to acknowledge that?
1: I like that reading. I do. I like it a lot. And I, but it, it's like one of those things, right? Like where it's like I like it. I I want that to be <laughs> what was intended. Right. For a number of reasons, I just am not sure it's just so muddled, you know? Yeah. It's just like it is not clear. And it's so funny that you say that because like as soon as you said like, well maybe he's telling Bellamy like you did do the right thing and you need to know that you did. Like I think that once you said it I- I was like, yes, that is an absolutely logical interpretation. And then I thought like, why don't we all just jump straight to, you know, like you'll still be lost meaning like, well, obviously he did it for Octavia, which doesn't make any sense, you know, but that right. seems like in the way that it comes off, it does seem like automatically that's it. And I think it's, I think you're right. It is partly tones, the arm grab and the, and Bellamy's response and, and kind of how it was shot and how it was blocked. But I think also partly it's because of the way that this, that the episode set us up to still be looking at Bellamy as, as the bad guy right. throughout. There's so many problems with this, again, with this episode, where it's just sort of like it's almost there, but then they just make a, a couple of choices that kind of undermine that. And I, the, I I do think that the sort of like, you'll still be lost line, I don't think it works, you know, because I think right. that it, it sort of works to shut down ambiguity that really needs to be there. Like, I think it would be better if they would have stopped it, like, did you do this because of your sister or because it was right? And leave it there. Or even just leave it at, at it matters. To leave some ambiguity, some openness about it. I mm-hmm. think that the, that line makes it kind of go, because like when he says that line, you'll still be lost. Everybody's like, oh, well, the point is that Bellamy is still lost and therefore he did it before his sister, which is the wrong reason. Right. I don't, I don't think that's what's supposed to be happening. I don't think that's the correct interpretation, but that is that line. You will still be lost until you do. You will still be lost. tells right. us as an audience, he's still lost and therefore made the wrong choice.
0: Right. Which is right. what
1: everybody else around him, you know, Octavia still thinks that. Right. You know, so like, so we have all these characters that we otherwise trust who are generally are sort of like moral compasses, who don't trust Bellamy and don't approve of what he does. And so we're like primed in all of these ways to basically take the worst interpretation. And then that line just confirms it. So I think like, right. I, I have a hunch that maybe you were right, that is what they were going for. And that's why I just kind of fell flat. But I mean, I think there's other there are other issues. So like, I think this is why like, this storyline, that problem of, like, whose side are we supposed to be on the narrative is a humongous problem. I mean, that's the that's the key problem here, right? Whose side are we supposed to be on the narrative? Are right. we supposed to be on Bellamy's side? Or are we supposed to be on Octavia's side? Are we supposed to be on Kane's side? You know, like, right. I think maybe we maybe we were supposed to be more on Bellamy's side, but that didn't work. So a couple things. So um, they released the script pages. I don't know if you saw this on the 100 Writers Tumblr. I they saw re- the one for the cave scene. Yeah, so for the cave scene, which I think, like, the way it's written works against your much happier interpretation. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
0: I was upset. I was like, I didn't like those stage directions. It says, Cain stops.
1: He, too, feels nothing but disappointment and anger for Bellamy, which, like, why now, you know? Like, Bellamy was, like, he tried to stop Lincoln getting killed. He was sitting chained to a wall in a cave when that went down. Yeah. Anyway still because he knows this is a family thing he swallows it and moves deeper into the cage which, which like okay it's disgusting to have someone look at one person one family member beating physically beating another fa- family member and be
0: like oh well it's a family thing and like I, that is just that not- was horrible and i also <laughs> felt i don't feel like that's how ian played it at all Saying like, oh, well, it's a family thing. Like, let me know when you're done pounding on your brother. Like, I don't feel like those are the choices that the actors made. And, and I don't feel yeah. like those are the choices that, the camera giving us shots of everybody feeling sort of sickened by it. Like, I guess the thing about the family thing line that bugs me is that that implies that Kane walks away because he's like, this is between you two and Octavia needs to do this to, you know, get it out of her system or whatever. But the thing that shuts everyone down and keeps them from interfering is that Bellamy needs this. Like, this is like Bellamy's like self-flagellating punishment of himself. and And that's like... And Cain was that man. Kane understands that impulse. And so part of me felt like, is Kane not intervening because, because he gets on some level that this is like, that Bellamy will feel better. Like, Bellamy needs this to atone. But if, even that you know, is
1: so fucked up, you know? Like, I Well, just, yeah. Like, yeah, like, even like, that's Gaffler, fucked up. Miller yeah. tries to jump in. Yeah he's yeah. the stage direction say if this is what his sister needs he'll give it to her besides somewhere inside he thinks he deserves it right which is sort of hard to tell from that written line if like i mean he thinks he deserves it are we supposed to think that he deserves exactly it? and yeah. he'll give it to her but then like also it's like if he does think that he deserves it you know that's how like how children who grew up in abusive households feel right well right. being abused yeah. you know like if we're supposed to approve of that if we're supposed to go like Look at that and be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, you should just take it because, you know, Octavia has to take it. I'm like, I am not at all comfortable with that message. Like, that is just not okay. That's just wrong, you know? That's
0: abuse. I mean, I do feel like watching it a second time, I feel like the intention is almost never at any point in this episode for us to be on Octavia's side. And I think that that yeah. makes sense. I mean, I, I think that yeah. I mean, the Octavia being the character... Who has been everyone's sort of, you know, everyone's get a grip friend, everyone's moral compass. She is like hard and fast, like there is a right and a wrong. And Octavia will, you know, drag you kicking and screaming into doing the right thing. And that's who she is in the service of the narrative. That's who she is to these characters. And so seeing her totally go off the rails because she can't kill Pike. But Bellamy is right here and she blames Bellamy and she can like wail on him. I don't feel like we are meant to be like, yeah, go Octavia. I would agree with you. This is, I mean,
1: I'm still like, I'm on the fence. Like I, yeah, yeah cause I think that there is plenty of evidence for that, you know, both in the right. fact that like we do get Several very pointed shots of the other of you know like Miller mm-hmm. and Brian and Sinclair and, and everyone like reacting and Sinclair yeah really being very very uncomfortable you know sort of like looking away like so we get we get some signals from the the other characters in the scene that this is something that is really extreme. We also get. Octavia's kind of like bloodlust that she has, you know, she, she keeps making like really, really reckless, bad decisions. And then I think also like the other, the other thing in in the episode that I think most clearly to me seems to indicate that we are not supposed to be on Octavia's side, or that we, or that we may are, we may be being told that, that Octavia has sort of like entered a kind of like revenge mode that is bad, that is going to be turned around is when after they take Pike away. And that one red shirt kind of sits up and she leaps up and she stabs the guy. And she it looks up at Bellamy and she says, Juice Strain, Juice Down. And we know that Juice Strain Juice Down has been discredited. Narratively, you know, like Lexa did it, but like when Lexa did it, that was the narrative saying, like, this needs to end. You yeah. know, this is like this is the way of destruction, you know, like this is an ethos that is bloodthirsty and causes conflict. And this is the part of grounder culture that is going to be Dismantled and needs to disappear. Right, we don't we do see, this anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We don't do this anymore. And We see sort of like you know, like playing out in Polis right now to some extent. We see the fallout from decisions driven by two strangers down, which killed Naya, which brought Antari back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when she did that, you know, and I like I read a, a bunch of reviews of people, and this is really like you know, these are people who are like cheering when Octavia is beating Bellamy, which is Ugh. just like so yeah, disgusting. Makes me ill. Um, yeah, me too. But like, you know, there are also people who are like, oh, man, you know, like a lot of like, and Octavia killing that guy at the end was so badass. Like, yeah, go to Octavia and I'm like, I. but I think that that's not supposed to be the reaction. I think we're, yeah. I think you're supposed to look at that and go, she's out of control. And I also yeah. just kept thinking like, Lincoln would not no. be okay with this. Like, this no. is like a desecration of Lincoln's memory. You know, yeah. I just want to like grab Octavia and shake her and be like, if Lincoln's saw you doing this right now, what would he tell you? Yeah. What would he tell you? Lincoln would tell you that your brother tried to save him. Yeah. Lincoln would tell you that he did the right thing here. He would tell you that forgiveness is always better than killing. Re- remember that scene in uh, Blood Must of Blood part one last season? They're all chanting juice, drain, juice down, and Lincoln doesn't. Yeah. He's the only person in that room who's not chanting. Yeah. And then Octavia just like stabs a guy in the heart and says juice, Strangers down looking at her brother. Like I think that's the one strongest moment to me that makes me have some degree of confidence that we are as an audience are no longer meant to be looking at Octavia as being our moral yes. Pet. Yes. You know, I agree. like she is no longer the 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 voice. And so I think that's also that's a signal as well. Like the fact that she won't forgive Bellamy even though he's made this turn. I you know, I think make maybe these are like signals that what they're trying to get to is that this is a real turn for Bellamy and he is making decisions in the right way. And he maybe still has to sort of figure out, like you're saying that he is capable of that. And like, maybe we'll cut, you know, I have a feeling like all this stuff is going to come out in conversation with Clark somewhere. Yes. online. please, please, please. But otherwise, but I think there's like just enough else. There's just enough working in the other direction and terms of like elements from the script right and you know like everyone kind of being like yeah sure octavia just beat up bellamy like it's, we're kind of uncomfortable but like we're not you know like no one's gonna stand up for him and then right. people continue they're all continuing not to trust bellamy right even though they do trust ryan and monty and who this did, is brian like, he yes. did the exact same things that yeah. bellamy yeah. did Switch sides after. And only because Miller said it's him or me. So, like, Brian did make a choice purely because of a personal connection to someone. Like, it's all this stuff which just like, I think really, like, it it just muddles up what exactly they're trying to do and what exactly they're trying to say about what is right and what constitutes a good basis for decision. And
0: that's why I feel like my biggest frustration with this storyline is exactly what you just said, which is that I think I I think that all of the ethical mess of who is right and who is wrong. I think all of that could work if I felt like it wasn't also part of the entire third season pointless villainization of Bellamy. Like, yes, I, I exactly. think, I think that it's the context of all the things that we've seen before this where Bellamy is given the moral weight of things he didn't do yeah, in yeah, a way that yeah. no other character is being yeah, asked is, to bear. Is, the
1: narrative, the narrative has it, at every point, every one of just dis- of Pike's decisions in 3A, every choice that Pike made to, you know, all those awful things that they did were framed as Bellamy's choice. Pike right. would say we're doing this and the camera would like rest on Bellamy's face for a while and watch him wrestle with it. Watch Bellamy know that it wasn't right and then choose to do it. Right. So, so Bellamy was like set up over and over and over again. And then like, same thing after the, the, Massacre, they walk in, you know, and everyone, all of our main characters react to Bellamy, not to Pike, who mm-hmm. gets up and give it, who made the decision and gets up and give a, gives a speech. Yeah, They react to Bellamy. They all look at Bellamy. They all, you know, Octavia talks to Bellamy. We're looking at Bellamy's face. All these, these things that weren't Bellamy's decisions, although he went along with them, but other people right, did right. too. You know, Brian did too, whoever. All, all these things that weren't Bellamy's choice were framed as being morally about his choice. Yeah. And, and that's- so this is about this is another instant you know i think that this has become a humongous problem yes for bellamy's like the reason that people look at bellamy and and act like he is the worst person in the story and that he is completely responsible for things that happen is because that's what the narrative has been telling
0: them for 10 episodes and that's why i feel like removing that context if we if we looked at like a version of the story where bellamy and and also monty but but bellamy because he is our he's the male lead of the show like Bellamy made some choices that he believed were the right thing to do for his people and ended up helping Pike make a terrible mess. And he realizes that he made a terrible mess and he wants to make it right. And by the time he realizes he wants to make it right, it's too late. And his friends don't trust him again. Like that's a, that's a narratively compelling story I can totally get on board with. And, and the problem with that is that it is not applied to like, like everyone's instinctive trust of Monty Right off the bat, I mean, like Harper does question, yeah. like, is it a trap? But, but that's yeah. that's but not in-
1: not like. But as soon as it's not a trap, they're like, oh, well, you know, right?
0: Well, the yeah, kane's like, go go to this place, so I'll bring you right in. You know, absolving Monty and Brian of their role because they were there helping to escape removes the fact that like that was Bellamy's idea. Bellamy yeah. was the one who was like. This has gone too far. Let's get the gang back together. We need to save Lincoln and Sinclair and
1: King. Yeah, with Bellamy's plan. Yeah. This is the point. And then Monty's like, we're doing this. "This Bellamy's like, we're doing this. Yeah. And like Monty was going along with his mom. Like Bellamy left to go warn Octavia. Yeah. To go try to stop it. Like Monty was sitting at that radio. Monty continued spying. Going along with his mom until the last second. Like, not like and I'm not trying to like make Monty the bad guy no I'm no no saying, but like, it's, but the whole this, thing's a mess it's so yeah frustrating yeah, yeah because yeah. like so to have all of the characters continue to mistrust and blame Bellamy for everything in a right. way that they don't other characters yeah. who are equally culpable right. in a lot of ways right and that's the thing um, that I
0: feel like I don't need Bellamy to be a cinnamon roll you know like I don't I don't want there to not be consequences for his actions but how disproportionate it feels And coming from characters who have been set up for us to be characters whose point of view we trust and taking in the context of the fact that the theme of the whole season has been undoing all of the careful three dimensional character work that Bob Morley has spent two seasons doing with Bellamy uh, makes me feel like. You can't watch this episode devoid of that context. I think the reason I find the Kane stuff so unsettling is because up until this episode, Kane, who has been very carefully built up over the course of this season to be a voice that we trust, Kane was the one person who kept saying over and over and over again, like, Bellamy can be redeemed. Bellamy can be brought back. Like, I have faith in Bellamy. I'm trying to get through to Bellamy. Like, and that the reason Kane gets arrested is because he can't hurt Bellamy. He can't just yeah. run that rover through the Arcadia yeah. Gates yeah. and yeah. knock Bellamy, and Bellamy over.
1: And Bellamy couldn't shoot him. And Bellamy couldn't and shoot Bellamy, him. And Bellamy Kane makes no sense there. Because yeah. he's been the one who's championing championing in Bellamy the whole time, and everything that has happened since should be further reasons for him to think that Bellamy to be on Bellamy's side. Not yeah. to suddenly be like, I'm so angry and disappointed in you.
0: Well, and or, that's and I and I feel like I'm I'm totally willing to like I'm willing to go along with the idea that. In the immediate, like this is you know minutes later aftermath of everyone just watching Lincoln die, that everyone is so upset that no one is yeah. thinking clearly, and everyone is like "fuck you, Bellamy." But the, but but only if the narrative is telling us they are all wrong and they are not thinking clearly because they are upset.
1: Yeah. I don't think the narrative. Which is I, don't know, doing. I don't know. I don't know the narrative I think is doing it's, it's that. doing for. I think
0: it's doing. I it might be doing it for Octavia, maybe. Mm-hmm. Remains to be seen. Maybe, yeah. but I don't think it is for Kane. I'm having a hard time separating like textual analysis from my a love of Kane and b my holding not... holding on to the fact that this really has been set up for us as the last person left who believes in Bellamy. And so, if in some sense and in, in a way that I suppose ties in a neat parallel into the City of Light storyline with Abby. I think that there is an extent to which both in the first and the second season, once we get to the place where like, and I feel like in some ways that's what this episode does, where, where the storylines begin to converge and the real big bad comes out and the real second half of this season conflict ramps up, the adults can't help Clark and Bellamy anymore. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. and so I think that in like in the first season they're physically separated because the adults don't even come down until the very end and they've lost all communication with the ark. And in the second season, Kane and Abby and Dad Miller, they've been kidnapped and they're all being held ransom in that weather. So so the the narrative converges to take the adults out of play. Because the end game has to be the kids having the narrative agency, and so I think that it's possible that the reason that this played out the way it played out is because it was only in my head and heart, and not really in the narrative, that Kane is the person who's going to save Bellamy, and that it always was going to have to be Clark. Yeah, that—that that that's probably true. Because I think that also the very harrowing moment at the very end of the episode where. It's not just that Abby has been, you know, chipped by Jaha. It's that Clark sees her standing there while people with guns shoot at their car and she's smiling like it, like Abby being in the city of light and Kane being off on whatever, you know, wherever his storyline ends up taking him once again leaves Clark and Bellamy without adult support. And I think that structurally, that's always, I think it's happening in some ways earlier in the narrative than it has been before in the hopes that maybe they will then come back and sort of be on the final team. But right now, the stretch of the story that we're in, I think that like Kane and Abby are removed as Bellamy and Clark's sources of support because... They yeah. have to be alone with nobody except each other for the story to play out the way these stories play out. So I find it upsetting, just as a person who likes those two characters and those like that's an important relationship. And I and I feel unsettled by not knowing: are we meant to be on the side of Cain and be like, yeah, screw you, Bellamy, for fucking everything up? There's places where I'm like, I'm not clear what you were trying to do, and tiny infinitesimal little changes would have fixed everything. I think that a little bit more attention to the fact that Brian is still an interloper. I yeah. think a little bit less aggression in both Kane and Bellamy's delivery of those final lines. There there were small things that could have been done that could have been like the point of view of the narrative is at this moment with X character. But it also I can't divorce any of that from the fact that like once again there's so much of, like, Bellamy's character all season has been a hot mess. If the, if the goal of season three was to literally make Bellamy the villain of this show for some reason, they couldn't be doing a more effective job. Right? I know. Like, is the secret trap here gonna be that, like, in season four, like, Bellamy's the bad guy? Because that's where this feels like this is going, and it's weird yeah. as hell, and I don't and like it's it. It's
1: definitely not. I, we know it's not, because, yeah. like, you know. Jason Rothenberg defensively tweeted at the beginning of the season, you know, like hashtag Bellamy is a hero after he, I think after he started getting critical pushback, on 304 Mm -hmm. and so we know that that's not what he meant but i think like this is one of those things like all those little like well if you just adjusted a little bit with the knowledge of the way that bellamy as a character was coming into this episode i think that's true but this is the problem is like this episode was in the can before these responses came back and they clearly, yeah among the many things that they did not anticipate about viewer reception of this season they clearly did not expect people to turn on bellamy the way that they did, and it and, boggles and it, my mind know. that no one saw that coming. Right? So, honestly, it just all comes back to the rush of the Lexus storyline because the mm-hmm. only reason that the massacre had to happen in three hundred five, and it couldn't have happened as a sort of like progression of like things get worse and worse and worse, kind of like which would have yep. made more sense. The reason why Bellamy got fucked by having to kill three hundred people, except for Indra, like instantly, and mm-hmm. then like hesitates about much smaller things for the rest of three A. <laughs> is because the massacre had to happen in 305 in order for Lexa to have the sort of blood must not have blood mo- sorry, 304, in order for Lexa to have the blood must not have blood mo- in 305, in order to move Clark and Lexa forward to get them into, into bed by the time she died in 307. Right. So like, it had nothing to do with Bellamy's arc as a character. Right. It had to do with the events that had to happen in order to make other things happen in other storylines.
0: Where, where I feel the most resistant towards the direction that they took Bellamy is that in the first two seasons, there are characters who were responsible for mass deaths before. And we're still morally on those characters' sides because we were, by the time they pulled those triggers, we were like, you have no choice. And so, like, or the, if they did have a choice, we understood why they felt like they had to make the choice right. they made. Or, or they you realized know? afterwards that they were wrong and the, like, yeah. the consequences hit immediately. Like, the yeah. minute they realized those kids were, are alive on the ground and that those 320 people in the culling didn't need to die, Kane is wrecked by it. Because if he'd waited yeah. one fucking day and listened to Abby Griffin, they would also be alive. Yeah. And but on the other hand, on the other side, like he could not have known. He could you know, not like, have known Abby that. Was going right. going on faith. Right.
1: And Cain does not and operate that way. Like, was he was doing his totally, job. Yeah. He had 100% logical, rational, understandable by the audience yep. reasons for believing what he believed and de- doing what he did. And right. like the problem with the massacre, like the reason it does not work, the reason it didn't work for the audience in the way that other similar, like controversial decisions did. But right. like if you think about like the difference between you know, Lexa abandoning Sky Crew in, right. in 215 and, and the decision that Pike and Bellamy make in of old oh, Pike and then Bellamy goes along with it. Right. Is that in both cases, you know, like these are, we have people who make choices because they think it's the right one to make. They sincerely believe that it is the right choice to make for their people, right? right. Like this is the best thing in a, in a difficult situation where there are big, problems you know on all sides they sincerely believe that they did the right thing and we were sort of told like the reason that clark forgives lexa eventually is that that moment in that you know like the bedroom scene when lexa says when they're talking about the ambassadors turning on lexa and clark says you know your ambassadors betrayed you what are you going to do and lexa says they did what they believed was right for their people and then clark's is supposed to be this like revelation moment you know so like what what we're meant to understood is that The reason that Clark finally forgives Lexa is because she finally realizes Lexa betrayed her because she thought she was doing what was right for her people. Or being told by the narrative that that is an acceptable reason to make a decision. That is a forgivable thing. Okay. So we're told, you know, we're told like extra textually over and over again by Jason. And then I think in some places in the text, the reason why Pike and Bellamy made the decision and with the the grounder army that they did is because they believed it was best for their people. And it's completely like the way that they sell it. It is absolutely true that those characters believe that they did what they was what was best for their people, and it still does not work for the audience right and I think the difference is that whether or not you actually agree that the betrayal about Weather was a good decision, which I think is controversial. There are a lot of immediate reasons why Lexa's decision was short term, maybe a good decision, and long term very obviously not a good decision so like I think you could have like a serious debate about whether or not it was really a good choice, but whether or not you agreed with her choice, the reasons she made it were immediately clear and apparent to the audience in a way that was, that was persuasive that she had good reasons to think it was the best thing. Yes. Because it meant that like, because we just seen a bunch of her, her warriors get shot, you know, get killed, but mowed down by Mount weather's guns. And we saw her people come out of the mountain alive. And we know that. So we know, you know, sort of like in that moment, there's like this shock. And then you think about it for a minute and you're like, Oh, okay. I get it. Because like on the one hand, if she sticks with class, they fight a battle where she definitely loses more soldiers, and maybe they get their people up, but maybe not. If she betrays Clark and makes a deal with Mount Weather, maybe Mount Weather might betray them later, maybe. But right now, she gets all of her warriors out of there, and she gets her people out of the mountain. So it's very, very clear why she thought that was good for her people. And it's like whether or not you think it was a good a- decision, it is persuasive reasons. We are never given a persuasive reason why the Grounder Massacre is actually good for their people we are told that they be-
0: believe it is we are i think for something that big we as an audience need to be persuaded well and we're actually i would say we're given be. we're given incredibly compelling reasons why it's a terrible idea for their people we know that that is an army that is not attacking they're not marching on the gates and they're not ice nation like they're not of a group of grounders that we yeah. know that and, have no loyalty
1: and killing them does not solve any immediate problems right killing them solves a potential uh, like a possible maybe future problem but then also as we are as immediately happens it invites like that's not the only grounder army in existence you know like and the fact that Lexa is immediately like all right, send another army and we're going to wipe them out Tells us what exactly why that was not a good decision for your people, whether or not you believed it was. You had no good grounds to believe it was, because like obviously the immediate reaction of your enemy is going to be like, "Fine, we'll send another army to kill all of you."
0: And this has come up before, and where I feel like, and even you know, even I think the actors have been asked for this, and it's like nobody has a compelling answer, which means I don't think that the show has a compelling answer. I don't think they thought like through. The I don't I, think I don't think they knew the answer. Well, because because it was I think it was in it was in Mo Ryan's interview in Variety with Jason and she was kind of pressing him where where she was like, okay, but there's so many more grounders than sky people. Is it not a suicide mission? He really didn't have an answer to that.
1: And, and also like, I mean, I think if you think about like, okay, so like they decided preemptive strike, you know, but like even that is sort of, But a preemptive
0: strike is such a bad idea. to somebody that outnumbers you a jillion to one. Exactly. Preemptive against what? You should be on your knees begging them to be nice to you.
1: Right. And it's also presuming that it's going to be persuasive to us as an audience. I I mean, like, what's the basis for the preemptive strike? What is the basis? Nothing, but basically we're going to give no reason other than, well, they, well, they have reasons not to trust grounders. It's like, well, okay, paranoia and fear are not good logical bases for preemptive strike. They they didn't realize that they needed to persuade the audience of their good reasons as well as their good intentions. They were just going on good intentions. It's the same
0: thing we talked about last time with, like, the lack of an election. Like, we're never given a lens into compelling reasons why anybody would think that Charles Pike knows what he's talking about and why they don't just immediately like push him down a well. And the things that are compelling are sort of tossed in so casually, like, okay, something, something, arable land. Okay. Right. But like yeah. but not until not until it's too late. And with no with not enough of a clear sense of the geography. If they live where the ship crashed, like if Arcadia isn't is just sprang up where like the ship was and it happens to be in a place that doesn't have arable land then and then they have to go further afield for planting okay but like earlier than episode eight is when that information should come through you know because then if the grounders are yeah. blocking their way to get the to the land that they need to be farming if the village that they're trying to clear is on land they've decided that they want those are not ethically good reasons to just kill a bunch of people but they're comprehensible standard issue colonialist reasons right and right, and right. so so i i think that not giving us those reasons at any point makes the grounder massacre just horrifyingly awful and and it makes it yeah. totally plausible why you'd find anyone involved in that Unforgivable. And so if the idea was that we were intended to believe that Bellamy and Pike and all those people are in some way that they have Arcadia's best interests at heart, then I don't understand why no one thought to ask themselves... We should probably explain why all these 300 grounders need to die.
1: I mean, I think this is another reason why that line with Kane bugged me a little bit as well. You know, the sort of like, did you do this for your sister or did you do it right? Because I think Mm -hmm. at this point, because the show, you know, it's like its morality has been so, like, inconsistent and often impossible to decipher. When somebody says, like, did you do this because it's right? It's like, well, which version of right are we talking about this week? Like, (laughs) like, is right still, you know, just like whatever you sincerely believe is right? Or are we... Are we are we setting that aside now? Okay. Are we setting it aside just for Bellamy? Are we setting it aside for everybody? Does right mean like strategically the best thing for Arca- Arcadia? Okay, but that's not like actually like categorically different from theoretically what they were deciding
0: on before. Like I, it's just sort of what well, you were saying that your that your friend was saying about that like Bellamy's firing at a moving target that's stationary for everybody else yeah, is yeah, like yeah. the best. Shocked, which- Brilliant. Yeah, which which that is which brilliant. is a perfect way of framing it. No one else is being questioned that like we're all on the same side now. Like like Pike yeah. Pike is Pike is bad. Pike is the bad guy. Pike killed Lincoln. Pike was going to kill all those ground. Like Pike Pike did bad things and at this point it's like it should be clear that everyone who is unified against Pike is on the same side because they've all now realized and they've come to it at different times and in different ways that those things were objectively and morally wrong. And Bellamy is the only person of everyone who was ever at any point on Kane on Pike's side, who even though he went along with some things used his influence to pull Pike back on other things. So like Pike wants to kill Indra Bellamy stops him.
1: Yeah. Pike and wants to kill. To stop him from killing the other injured as well, but he only yeah. sees Vindra. Yes.
0: So I feel like there's a much more interesting version of this story where if real, real urgent reasons for this had been given at the beginning, A and B that we're seeing those scenes that we now know from Bob's interviews live on the cutting room floor, which is unconscionable where we saw Bellamy being like a corrective force On Pike, Like we saw Bellamy being a good influence on Pike repeatedly, which we know, again, use it extra textually. We know those things happen, but we need, but like you shouldn't have to follow the writers on Twitter (laughs) to know, you know, like, like this shouldn't like Bob at a con in France or whatever saying, Oh yeah, there was a scene where we saw Bellamy talk Pike out, you know, it's like, well, that's information that we needed. So like, so a feed us better reasons at the beginning. B show us that Bellamy as Pike's right-hand man is helping keep Pike in line because that's there's bits of that there like running throughout it we just weren't shown those moments yeah, and yeah. then then the the sort of then the inherent pathos of him finally coming around realizing that all of it was bad not just the parts that he thought were bad and tried to fix in the moment as they happened but all of it was bad and wrong and And had unimaginably terrible consequences, and he's like okay now i'm I'm turning on him, I'm on your side, and then everyone is like, "It's too late. we're all still you know super pissed at you. There's a lot to love in that potential arc if we're being guided all the way through along that we're trying to be that we're on Bellamy's side, and that we understand yeah. why he does the things that he does because yeah. just like when they pulled the trigger in Mount Weather, it's an objectively horrible thing that has to happen." And we've seen you go through all the steps of weighing why it was necessary. It feels like, and then it
1: could be like heartbreakingly ironic. You that's know, what like, I. That's what, me, I like, so, that's what I wanted. That's you know, like, what I, I, I wanted. I wanted.
0: To- I don't know. Maybe that's what they're going for, but that's not what landed. No, it's not what landed. And that's what I wanted was like, I. I wanted it to be about the heartbreak of Bellamy coming around too late, yeah. and like you know, Octavia has written him off. And, you know, and Kane and all of his friends are angry. And it doesn't matter at this point how badly he wanted to help and what the plan was that he had that we never found out because he missed his window. And that yeah. is heartbreaking and beautiful and could have been a really great way to tell. Like that's, those are the consequences of your choices, Bellamy, you know, and, and that could have been a really powerful story. And that then how he goes about then making it back up and what he has to do to fix it and repair those relationships because he wasn't permitted to do the thing he was trying to do. It could be a really great second half arc for him. But again, you can't divorce that from the context of, of the, the weird inexplicable decisions all throughout the whole season the decisions were made multiple times in, I think in the writing and in the editing, certainly even in the, I think sometimes in the direction to, to sort of assuming, I guess that like, Assuming people love Bellamy and they'll just sort of go along with whatever. Like, I don't know. You know, I like, was it, is it like Bellamy is so popular that we don't need to waste a lot of time explaining why he does these things because everyone loves him so that they'll still love him, which is a real disservice to your audience. Like, or, 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 or just like, there were some assumptions made about where we needed lots of information and where we needed no information that I question top to bottom about Bellamy's yeah, whole storyline. Yeah. Like, for instance, we didn't need a
1: 90-second ground or anthem with, like, slow-mo procession. Right. You know what else we didn't need? Gina,
0: who's never yeah. been mentioned again. Never been mentioned. Never
1: been mentioned. Yeah. Huge motivating factor, but apparently never existed.
0: And well, and uh, I was thinking when, we, when I was watching the episode again, the low-key implication that everything that Bellamy has done... Being motivated Octavia by Octavia, which is well, a total retcon. Octavia. Octavia wasn't at Mount Weather. What we were told was that it was Gina was the motivating factor yeah. that flips Pike flips him over to Pike's side, and that secondarily, Pike's motivating factor, which would also in in some degree and was a better motivation for Bellamy too, was this notion of the food storage and the loss of supplies and the practical realities of the fact that. Yeah the grounders completely took away their resources and like their survival, which, which again was not given to us. Um, and Octavia had nothing to do with any of those things.
1: Never, ever, never had anything to do with it. So that's like a
0: bizarre retcon. It's a bizarre retcon that then feeds into this idea again of like, that we don't, that we, the audience don't particularly need to know what's going on in Melanie's head or that they're not remembering what they told to us before. Because the amount yeah. of time that's spent, and it's not a ton, but it was some, you know, on Gina as a person, on Gina's relationship with Bellamy, on, you know, weighting her down with a sort of symbolic, like, she gives him the Iliad, like, it's this whole, you know, moment. And that then even Bellamy never mentions her again, let alone anyone remembering that she was presented to us as the reason he made this initial set of bad choices. Like, we should now be living in the fallout of... Bellamy making a choice about Gina that had terrible ramifications. And instead, the narrative is presenting it as though this is about Octavia. So then when Cain says, was this because it was a good thing to do or about Octavia? Then it's like, why are we talking about Octavia? Like, are we, right. are we talking about this in like, do you mean that thing just now? Or do you right. mean all of the things? Because if you mean right, just right. that thing just now, okay. But if what you're asking is like, Are you moving from a subjective to an objective morality where you have a clear sense of right and wrong that isn't situational based on your sister's safety? The implication of that, and this isn't Kane or Ian's fault, like this is the whole mess. The implication of that is that all along the problem was overprotectiveness of Octavia. And that's season one, Bellamy. it literally never has been this season. No, so because kind of like because Bellamy's like because when we come back from like when we come back at the beginning of season three, Bellamy's a leader. Like Bellamy's on the guard. He's yeah, Kane's right hand man. The
1: first thing, the first thing that Bellamy says to Octavia is "Lead the way," something yeah. like that. But anyway, like she's on the horse and she's like out there, and he's like, "Oh yeah, go ahead, little sister." Right, right. You know, like and then they have a lovely little conversation about like you know if you got to go, you should go. Yeah, always, always fit in with me. Like letting her go, you know, like it does not fit. In the slightest, with any part of the Bellamy that we've seen in season three or the arc that we've been given. So it's
0: just like jarring that out of nowhere. Well, and and that he's, you know, he's introduced to us in, in the pilot as this person who has no real hard and fast sense of right and wrong, except that there is nothing that he wouldn't do to protect his sister. And then what we see over the course of season one, and especially in season two, is that the circle of people that Bellamy would do anything for expands and expands and expands. And so, so my read on where we're meant to see Bellamy in season three is that he's now taken up this position where like his primary loyalty will always be to his sister and to the delinquents, but that all those people are his people, not giving him the benefit of the doubt that he was motivated by trying to help Arcadia feels really puzzling to me.
1: Yeah, me too. And also, I mean, I think that that's a kind of step back, like, in, even in season two, when he was in Mount Weather, you know, like he was trying to save the delinquents, but he's the one who said to Clark, you know, like there are children in here. Right. Right. You know, he's like, already, he's, he's like, he like, even in Mount Weather, he was like, I'm trying to save my kids and their kids and the grounders and also all the people who help me. And he, you know, yeah. like in 305 when he had the conversation with Clark. He said that to Clark. He,
0: he told, told Clark, Clark yeah. You know, like,
1: we killed all those people, people who trusted me. Yeah. You know, so like, so we've been told over and over again that Bellamy, and we've seen that his like sort of sphere of protectiveness and his sense of like right and wrong and who ought to be protected had been expanded. You know, like, yeah. like so it's a little bit frustrating even if it is like Kane being like, are you moving from a subjective to an objective morality? Because it's sort of like, yeah, but he did that. He so did. Like, yeah, even right. if that's what's happening. This right. is, I mean, again, going back to like, this is the problem with Bellamy's story. Even if that is the story they're trying to tell, which is better than the one
0: that's kind of on the screen, then it's still like a repeat of a arc that he's already well, done. Well, that's the thing. That's, I think my, I think my, my biggest frustration is that we have already watched him have this storyline. We've already yes. watched Bellamy go through the process of realizing that he cares about more people than just his sister. And, and he did that to such an extraordinary degree that he was a clearly, like, he was a hero by season two. And he wasn't like a perfect, precious snowflake. He was still a deeply messed up person, but that he already, like, he was becoming a real leader. So I feel like it continues to be confounding why all of that got race. You know, like Jason Rothenberg's comments
1: about like, well, you know, Bellamy was kind of too good last season. Or well, people yeah. just want to make it perfect.
0: Like as though exactly. him being likable happened against your will and that you never yeah. wanted that. But it's like that was a writing choice that you made. And and also, you can you can rough him up and not make him like a villain with no motivations. Like yeah. like he could still make every concrete choice that he made in this season and he could make them at the same point in the season that he made them and still we could be brought along with those things if they were backed up more it's like he he could have been bellamy in a really ugly and complicated moral situation instead of being like snidely whiplash you know like like i'm evil for fun
1: presented to us like presented to us honestly as Moral black and whites. I think that's the big difference between this season and other seasons. There have been very, very few points in the season where we were presented with a moral quandary that was really, truly a moral quandary. Right. Unlike other seasons, almost all of the big decisions that we were presented with, there was a very clear, like the, so that the narrative was basically
0: like pretty clearly telling us there's a right decision here and there's a wrong decision here. And well, and there's, and there's a right person here and a wrong person here too. And the wrong person is Bellamy way too often. I totally get why everyone thinks Bellamy is unredeemable because if they weren't telling that story then from the first minute of the first season, they should have been making a whole different set of different choices. You know, I think it's just like a
1: problem with the rush, you know, where like it takes time to set up moral quandaries. Like how many of, how long did they set up the culling? Like that was a, a while coming and it's very delicate. And like, they've like rushed through so much this season that I think like they genuinely, all this stuff that's like very like morally black and white as it's presented. I think, you know, like they, they talk a lot about like, well, perspective and you're like, and in the kind of like, you know, compulsory reading writer's Twitter. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, You know, they'll say things like, well, you have to understand from so-and-so's perspective, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, all right, that's for all well and good. But like, if the point is that everyone is equally right, then you need to show us the reasons why everyone is equally right. Yeah. Not show us one side of the story. Essentially, like there's a right, there's a good decision and a bad decision. And then, you know, like they choose the bad decision and be like, well, but okay, but like, here's why they made that decision. You're like, that needs to be very like, in order for it to be a morally gray situation, you need to like show us the gray areas.
0: And part of what I wonder is like, is this partly the consequence of going what's going to end up being 11 episodes without having Clark and Bellamy in a storyline together? Because because part of the problem is Bellamy doesn't have anyone to talk to. Bell so which which means which not problem too. Like neither of them have had anyone. Like and look at like you look at
1: that one scene they had three oh five and like every scene that they have. But like this that's the one time that those characters were able to sort of like stop and like confront the emotional moment that yeah. they were in. Yeah. And it's the only time that either of them really, really showed a great deal of vulnerability. Yeah. And I think it's like so it's like really significant that like the fact that these two characters have not been in a scene together and also at they are the most like inscrutable in terms of understanding where they're at and like what their motivations are. Like, I mean, I think that's not a coincidence
0: because, because a big part of who they both are is like keeping it all inside and you do, what needs to be done. That is a vital part of both of their personalities, but for the benefit of the audience and for the benefit of moving the narrative forward in a way that feels clear, you have to give a character like that some way to communicate and barring soliloquies you know they have to have a person to talk to and so because they've always been that for each other I don't know if anybody was prepared for the extent to which the narrative suffers when neither of them has a confidant because there's things that Clark you know it aren't the kind of things that she could talk about with Lexa and and that Bellamy can't talk about these things with Octavia like they have people that they care about but they don't have a partner they don't have a person who understands sort of how their you know mind works and where they have to sort of like keep up walls with everybody else either because they're protecting them or because it's like you don't really understand sort of what it's like to be in this position you know there's things Bellamy can't talk about this stuff with Monty you know So, so I feel like the necessary consequences of that is that both Clark and Bellamy for the first half of the season were doing things that felt unfounded that might have been totally logical if we had gotten 10 seconds of them being able to say here's here's a real reason why clark goes in one episode from i want to kill lexa to i'm staying here to be her ally with well, a real reason right. why bellamy trots off with pike to go kill all of those grounders like who- well again i think like the, the point you said
1: about the fact that they don't have anyone to talk to is so important because like clark and that when she makes that decision she's we don't see it because yeah. she's just in a room thinking about it and we just cut from one scene where she's talking to someone to the next scene where she's changed her mind right and like that's the key right like short of having Clark give a soliloquy in her bedroom about what's going on in her mind they they couldn't you know like we have no way of knowing and so it winds up just just doing and same with Bellamy like there's no one he's going to talk to you know like short of having a soliloquy with like the bust of Clark in (laughs) uh Well, and that's why, like Abby's quarters or whatever, like there's no one who's gonna go like, "Hey, I got." I'm like thinking about this.
0: The consequence of breaking up the ensemble, I think, is a huge part of why I think this season has suffered. Is that you have this really tight ensemble of a lot of different people who serve a lot of different roles for each other, and you have people like Clark and Bellamy, whose whole deal as leaders is that they don't let. Their vulnerabilities show. The role they've always played with each other as partners has been that, like, you're the person that I can tell everything to because I know that I'm not being judged. And so the yeah, like, the forgiveness yeah. thing, the like, like you they're and, are the people they can be they can be vulnerable. They can be they, vulnerable. And person messy. that they can turn
1: to, yeah. and say, I don't know, you know, yeah. like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the right thing is to do. Right, like, and they, and they that, don't do that with anybody else. Yeah,
0: and that they can both say to each other, like. I know you well enough that I completely believe that if you told me you had to do that thing, I'm going to say you had to do that thing. Like I'm I'm going to affirm to you that your gut was right. I guess where I'm at right now with Bellamy is I think there's so much riding on the next episode. And I yeah. and I think that like I definitely feel like what the show is setting up is that it's going to be a long time before he gets forgiveness with Octavia, but that there is a temporary truce because there's a bigger problem. But what I'm really interested to see that I think is super important is him and everybody else. They wouldn't have a bottle episode focused around everyone teaming up to save Raven if part of the goal of that wasn't that they're going to end this episode being a group again. My hope is that we get some better insight into these continuing to be really troubling questions about why Bellamy's done anything that he's done this season that hasn't been explained to us, and why the minute his behavior became comprehensible, everybody was like, "Bellamy, why are you acting like this?" <laughs> it was like, "Yeah, right,
1: exactly." I think that's why it's so confusing. But yeah, yeah. no, I'm very like I think a lot of rides on the next episode, and I think it's really you know, I'm hopeful because, like, again, we have everyone back together, like, Bellamy and Clark are back together, hallelujah, Yes, you know, and, like, everyone's, all these delinquents are back in a room together, and I think, like, the stress of the situation, they're going to be forced to kind of, like, have it out with each other in terms of their issues, which I hope is true, and, you know, uh, although, like, there's a part of me that's just kind of, like, like, I feel so bad for Bellamy after last episode, I kind of, I like, I just want to someone on his side that I'm almost just like Clark come on you know like I know you've had your problems but like I just want them to be like oh thank god it's you let's just get through this and then we'll talk about our issues well and that's um... (laughs) I I
0: feel I feel a little bit like I'm hopeful that that's what we're gonna get because at this point part of it too just logistically and maybe this is a good sort of transition to the city of light is is all of them have Different pieces of information. You know, Raven obviously is, is possessed by Allie and they're all trying to, you know, to save her. Bellamy and Monty know that Kane is in Polis and they know that Pike is gone and the Arcadia blockade is lifted. Right. Jasper is the only one who knows what's happened at Arcadia. He knows about Abby. He knows about Jaha. He knows that they're up to something. He knows that more and more of these chips are being handed out and that Arcadia isn't safe. And Clark knows about the flame. She knows where Murphy is. She has Becca's book. She also knows that Nyla has a wristband and Jasper knows that the wristband is really important. So so it's like everyone has different pieces of information and there's jobs for everyone to do. And this has always been a team that's really good in an emergency. You know, Clark and yeah. Raven putting aside their animosity when finn is about to die so that she can perform the surgery like that's who these people are and and then it always tends to be the act of we're going to put aside our like i'm pissed at you and you're pissed at me but right now we have to save somebody's life so stick a pen and we'll come back to it and the act of working together always makes those then subsequent when the dust has settled conversations have a different tone to them because it reminds them that they're a team, and so, so I guess yeah. my my hope for you know for how this all plays out is that Clark, who's been you know like alone and on the run and is grieving and is you know fleeing for her life and is probably feeling some guilt to having left Murphy behind. And and also, and how badly we saw her wanting Bellamy to see that he was wrong. And he does yeah. now, you know, like she, yeah. like she didn't hate him. She wasn't even angry at him in the same way that Octavia was. She was like, this isn't who you are. She comes to him and she expects him to be like, yes,
1: okay. Right, you know like yeah let's do this like let's be partners and he said no and so I think like she was she was devastated and hurt and confused yeah but not angry not angry anywhere
0: near the same way like that Octavia was yeah so I feel like Clark's relief that Bellamy has come around and her relief that like she has old Bellamy back again. And the fact that again, like one of their kids is in trouble. Mom and dad have to like run the team. Like what I'm hoping for is that we're going to get some classic old school dad Bellamy, mom Clark delinquent action. Bellamy realizing that he has value and that he is still yeah. needed is going to be like the healing thing. Like I think in hindsight, yeah. I think it makes some sense that the rift with Kane had to happen as heartbreaking as I found it because Clark has to be the person who reminds Bellamy why he matters. I kind of wonder if, you know,
1: like Kane giving Bellamy the kind of, was it your sister or was it the right thing? Ultimatum. And he says, because it matters. You know, one of the things that's that's weird about that is that he he says it like it's an either-or, which it's really not, right? Like, it could be both. Right. And I think it very clearly is. But also, we have a lot of instances throughout this episode of people making choices based on their personal allegiances, their, like, personal relationships, people they care about, rather than some larger thing where it is the right thing. They did set up a parallel between Hannah and Bellamy. And I think, again, the key there, like Hannah, first she chose Monty because he's his, her son, right? And she told him to
0: get away. And then she turned on him to stick with Pike. I think maybe to protect him? I think so. I think, we're, I think we're meant to assume that somehow that became the only way to keep Monty from being actually killed.
1: Right. So I think it's significant that um Bellamy was presented with the exact same choice later in the episode, and he made the opposite choice. He did not ally with... With Pike. So I mean that's for him making the right choice. Like Abby, in that storyline, maybe this is the way we can transition to City of Light, Abby made a, her choice based on protecting based on the people that she cared about. Yeah. And that seemed to be the right choice, you know? Yeah. And I think we all at this point we've all pretty much figured out that like the key for the city of light, the sort of like glitch or the thing that's gonna that gets you out, that allows you to resist is, is love, right? Is like yeah. remembering the people who are important to you who you care about. Yeah. So I do wonder if What's actually going to turn out to be the case that Bellamy was right here and Kane wasn't? You know, yeah, like Kane yes, says yes. like this or this, and Bellamy later is going to be like, no, all of it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you that's know, um, and I and I'm totally and I think it would be great if like if the way that's presented is that Kane is a person who we know has has had this very sort of black and white morality, and I think that. It has shifted, but he is still a person that has a very keen, strong sense of right and wrong. And and yeah. how that manifests and what he thinks is right versus what he thinks is wrong has changed. But I think that it would be interesting if that turned out to be foreshadowing for the realization that all of these things are connected to People making choices for the people that they care about, you know, and and sacrificing themselves or risking themselves for the people that they care about over a particular cause. Because, yeah, because I think Abby in that beautifully acted and almost unbearably difficult to watch interrogation scene, like, like Abby is perfectly willing to be tortured. Like you can do whatever the hell you fuckers want to me. I'm not going to submit to this. And, and they have prepared for that eventuality. So instead they go after Raven, you know, and, and they do it in a couple of different ways, but horrible, you know, torture montage of Raven basically reliving every past trauma as a way to break her so that they can hack in basically means that they can use the risk of Raven hurting herself as the only potential thing that could possibly get Abby, who is a doctor who we've been reminded over and over again this season, like moving her out of the politics storyline into the, yeah. you know, the city of light one. That's because she's a doctor, you know, and, and this is the most important thing to her. And also that she has this huge love of Raven. But yeah, but I, I, I've been, I've been thinking a lot over the past couple of days about the city of light and, and the way that all these pieces are fitting together and, And the way that it taps into really nicely into this overarching narrative that like that you and I have talked about before about the idea that the theme of the whole season is everybody at varying times and in varying ways, making choices to hide from a hard thing inside something easier, and then realizing that the hard, true, real thing is ultimately the better choice. And yeah. it's subtextual or underplayed in some ways and is made very, of course, like aggressively explicit in the City of Light storyline, but it's there for a lot of people in a lot of ways in many storylines. So, and the City of Light storyline, which is the one that's been set up from the beginning that it was going to be sort of like the big kind of culmination, is really where that's the most explicit. And so the fact that it's made so clear that the thing you know the thing that gets raven to realize that ali is fucking with her head is when she realizes that she can't remember finn and and the idea that she would rather like cause herself physical pain and go back to that physical pain than to not have those memories is what leads to the really like the idea that people would choose pain over choosing the city of light is a confounding notion To Ali, who doesn't understand why everyone isn't taking up on this offer. And it's what leads to the really creepy, unsettling insistence of Jaha that then, for our own good, you need to hack us. You know, you need to. Hack our system, you know, and take away our free will because of the idea that somebody would choose to not be in this city of light because they would rather have that pain if it came with the memory of the person that they love. So I feel like the idea that everyone is motivated by making choices that are connected to the people that they love and care about, and that they would rather have that even if it's painful than hide from those things I think is I think in some ways it may be that this episode was Bellamy thematically beginning to enter into that storyline in in a more overt way and I will say I feel like the City of Light storyline all season long is the only one that has consistently worked for me
1: yeah yeah, me too it's the only one that's really had like a, a really consistent coherent trajectory yeah So so the first time I watched this episode, I hated it. It was horrible to watch. Yeah, I was so upset. There's a lot of good stuff. They made a few very specific decisions that were bad enough in the wrong ways to really kind of screw up the good stuff, you know? And I Mm -hmm. think in Raven's storyline, that was the violence. The first time through, the torture scene and the cutting scene were both just like, I was like, that was too much. You know, and I was also trying to think about, like, okay, is there a narrative purpose for this violence? Because right. that makes a big difference. You right. know, like, there's been a lot of, like, pointless violence this season. Right. Um, just, like, gratuitous, just, like, and again, like, lovingly shot, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, sensuously shot. So I was like, all right, is there, is there a purpose for this? Because if there's a purpose, then all right. So I think, like, the first sequence, and we talked about this briefly before this, the first sequence I think there is. It goes on a little, Maybe a little too long. It's like almost two minutes long. That's a long time. But I think the reason for that is I think that they have like a good reason to want the the audience to experience that level of discomfort and like distress with Raven. That feeling paired with the like wash of relief when it ends, yeah, I think is meant to help us feel what she feels and understand why she gives in. And again, like, I think maybe like you could have lost like 30 seconds of it, right? Yeah, but
0: I I think that it it is, it's narratively necessary, partly to to remind us that, remind us of the pain that she gave up and why, because, because Raven, like, Raven is such a tough cookie, like Raven is so strong. And so, and so the idea that she is you know, that she would make the choice to, like, erase that part of herself, we have to feel like it makes sense for who she is. And in it, and it, and it is yeah. it is set up beautifully, like, you know, when she first takes the chip, that we understand exactly why. But, but then once she's realized what it's doing to her, and once her ravenness has kicked back in again, and she's like, get this thing out of my head, I think that we we have to go through that harrowing series of flashbacks where we see all the terrible things that have happened to her. And I, and I think that it does have to go on for a long time for us to sort of feel like this is what she's feeling every day.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or that, or just like the sense of like, this is unbearable, you yes, know? And I remember yes. kind of feeling that And I, but I think that like feeling this is the, of this is unbearable is actually doing storytelling work. Yes. So like for that one, I think that that was, I'm like, okay, like that was rough, but I, but that one, I buy that choice. Like I buy that that was like, that was the correct choice in terms of like telling the story. The cutting part, like I understand it it needs to be something bad. It needs to be something that very, very clearly is like, oh, Abby's got to give in now. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's gotta like make us as an audience feel like the urgency, but I think the cutting was a misstep. Partly because it's just so, like, so triggering. You know, like, uh, the kinds of self-harm that you could have had Raven do. Cutting is just... And slicing up the arms, like, anyone who has self-harmed or attempted suicide or a lot of people who know, the people, like, it just, yeah. like, brings with it all these really, really distressing connotations.
0: Well, it's it's next on the list of, of things that they did without considering how the particular audience of this show would respond. As
1: soon as she did it, I was like, oh my God, I hope all those like teenagers paid attention to the warnings and didn't watch if if they were going to be triggered because like I was I was, like, I'm terrified. There's like some, you know, like somebody out there who yeah. saw that not expecting it and re-triggered them to hurt themselves again
0: we're seeing the consequences of like the whole season being in the can before anything started airing where like one of the things that was in the air a lot after the Lexa death was that a lot of young women who had a very personal connection to the character of Lexa and felt very personally invested as young queer women in her as a role model. And the sort of conversations happening about like, what is the moral obligation of a showrunner? to be careful about telling stories that have a traumatic real world impact by hitting too close to where you live without acknowledging how that looks to the person watching it. And it was the same thing with Lincoln and the way we talked about like how it looks on the news, watching black men get shot. So it's like, it's another uninterrogated visual image where it's like, again, there is a world in which you could have made the case to me that that was necessary enough to outweigh the harm of that image, but you didn't do that work the same way you didn't do with Alexa and the same way that you didn't do it with Lincoln and the same way that you didn't do with Murphy's lack of consent. I don't, I don't feel confident that you know how that feels to somebody watching that for whom that's a personal trigger.
1: Yes. And in in sort of doing the the like necessity test, it doesn't really pass. Right. Right. Because like all he needed was a situation in which, Abby felt that she had to take the chip or Raven yeah. was going she to She could have be, been poisoned and foaming
0: in the mouth. She could have been yeah. having her fingers broken one by one so she can't work anymore. Yep. There's so right. many things that could have happened that that give us what we need in a character basis from Abby is an aggressive raising of the stakes. Like a exactly. a a thing that is unarguably a time-sensitive emergency, and it, a it didn't have to be wrist-cutting, um, which I just I had to I just stop the DVR. Like I don't, that's not like a personal trigger for me. But I have I have a thing about wrists. Like I have like I don't wear bracelets or watches. I can't. If there's anything. And anything happening to anyone's wrist and any kind of a movie, or, like I can't, I can't, I just it is horrifying to me. And so I just stop and like yeah. chill but down for like mention, ten minutes. Also,
1: like hmm. we watched the razor go all the way up her arms, the go all up her arms. We watched the blood drip out the... onto the floor. We watched her fall down. Yeah. And it was like yeah. again, it's, it was like very, it's very shot like, so
0: lovingly in yeah. in a way yeah. that like like we talked about last time, where it's like the like yeah. weird like eroticization of all of this blood and gore and so it's like so i yeah. so i object to the choice to cut the wrists and i ag- object yeah. aggressively to the detail that we were given and the way the shot yeah. lingered on that and 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 then you know and then later and then when jasper comes to find her and there's the bandages and it's like that's got to be triggering too you know so, yeah. so there was there was a lot of things about it where i felt like i'm i'm with you on the fact that ali and jaha are too canny to think that they can just bully Abby into taking the chip and they're smart enough that they've waited until Pike and Kane are gone like they are like yeah. this is they've waited until everybody else in authority anyone who outranks ex-chancellor Jaha anyone who could protect or help or support Abby in any way um, or anyone who just is sort of like in general on to their shit is gone like the delinquents are on the run like every everyone who could possibly intervene to save Raven except for Abby and Jasper has been taken out of play and Abby isn't going to break. So like, I understand narratively why, you know, and, and it was, it was beautifully, horribly effective having Lindsay playing like Allie possessed. Oh my God. Lindsay like, was amazing. Give Lindsay like, all incredible. the acting awards for her, her yeah. like the like her mannerisms, her voice, you know, the, the the weird sort of creepy kind of exorcist turn that the whole episode takes when she sits up in that bed. So yeah. so it made so a lot of that. And again, like, like, if you subtract out the arm cutting, I still feel like Raven is the only person whose storyline continues to be, I think, nearly flawless, like yeah. really solidly working and and setting her up to be the center in a way that she hasn't been in a really long time. Yeah. And I also felt like the other beautiful surprise in that storyline is Jasper, who I yeah. felt, I, I, I just
1: felt like oh PTSD and then dead. And then now he's like right. the last man standing. And he's the hero. Like, and I, and I love, oh God,
0: Jasper. and what I loved about that, Jasper's first entry point into the city of Light storyline is, is, you know, several episodes ago when we see him like, flirting with the idea of taking the chip more than once, yeah. you know? And, yeah. and so he's, because we have seen, like, cause he's so messed up. He's so traumatized. He's so grieving. You know, his friends don't know what to do with him. He's totally isolated. He just sits alone listening to Maya's iPod. He's a mess and he doesn't know what to do with himself and he has no sense of how it's going to get better. And the difference, the really beautiful difference that I think is sort of in some ways, I hope because it's so lovely this season in microcosm is that, like, Raven and Jasper are both the two most vis- visibly suffering characters, right? Like, when this season starts, like, they're the most, they're the most damaged by the things that have happened to them. And they're both unable to deal with it, and they're both having a really hard time. Rejecting help, kind of shutting everyone else out, throwing themselves into, you know, for Raven, it's work, for Jasper, it's drinking, like, they're both kind of falling apart. And what we see in this episode is that Jasper isn't magically cured of his PTSD. Like, Jasper is yeah. not fixed. Jasper doesn't take the chip because he realizes once he figures out, because he's the one that helps Raven figure out what's actually happened to her because Finn is real to Jasper. And so Jasper reminds Raven that Finn is real. And that's when she's like, Oh shit, what's happening. And so the mo- Jasper
1: accidentally ate some of it last week. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It's,
0: good, poor Jasper. So, so Jasper <laughs> realizing that he'd rather be unhappy, he'd rather be suffering than forget everything about Maya and him deciding not to take the chip and him teaming up with Raven to help stop this whole thing, he's entered back into the narrative with a lot of force and energy and purpose because he's found something he's contributing again. He's found something to do again. And so he's healing himself from his own pain and suffering in the healthy way. Like he's accepting it and he's pushing through it. And he's just, he's like, okay, I need to like, I need to help my friend, you know? And so he, so we see the, the difference between the consequences to Raven who had like one moment of weakness and was like, okay, I want to like, I want to escape versus Jasper dealing with his, pain and suffering by trying to use it for the benefit of somebody else. I, I think, but, but not hiding from it, you know, and, and the show not erasing it. Like he's still, you know, when he, when he crashes through those gates and he runs into Clark, like he's still crazy eyed Jasper, like, but he's, um, but he's found a purpose again, you know, and, um, and so I really feel like, one of the things that makes me the most optimistic about, you know, where the show is at right now is, is the sort of the surprise kind of rise of him as a character who, like Murphy, is now sort of unexpectedly in possession of a bunch of important information, like the these sort of transmitter characters who know things that everybody needs to know. Clark needs information that they have, you know, so she meets Murphy and she gets the information that Murphy has. And now Jasper's coming and Jasper has the second half of this Um, and giving him back some agency, I think is really great because, you know, it was really troubling sort of, I think the show did a good job of not pulling their punches with what PTSD and trauma really look like. And, and it was, it's unsettling sometimes to hear the kind of like, the dialogue around Jasper's character being about how like, oh my God, Jasper's so annoying, you know? And it's like, yeah. well, he's he's gr- he's grieving and they're showing us like they picked, this is the character where they're really, really, really exploring the PTSD, which everybody has, but it's most explicit in Jasper who has sort of the least capacity to deal with it and the least else to take his mind off of it.
1: There's a lovely kind of, payoff in having jasper start out the season as being the one who appears to be coping the worst right you know who appears to be sort of like the one who is not adjusting who is has the biggest problem and then to sort of shift like through like you're saying all of the like ways in which people are not dealing with their shit you know yeah and trying to escape or, or avoid dealing with their shit and like coming out the other end and and sort of like in retrospect being able to look back and go jasper is actually the one who was coping the best in some ways mm-hmm. arguably mm-hmm. because he was facing the thing that hurt yes. Like he was he was feeling his pain right in a way where everyone else was very resistant to their You know, like they they were sort of pushing it away or trying not to face it or trying not to feel it too much, Right. you know, trying to avoid it. And so, yeah, so there is something sort of like very satisfying, you know, sort of dramatic irony. Yeah.
0: Reversal, you know, which I really Um, love because I feel like it that the message that that sends is that the the right thing to do is always to face the hard truth. And that him in contrast with, you know, Raven, who who made the choice to take the chip and Jasper wanted to, and he flirted with it. And he, and he only didn't the first time because Abby took it out of his hand. But then afterwards, when he, when he realized what it was and that he didn't want it, I think that the strength of character that that shows like two people have turned down the chip and it's Abby and Jasper. And, yeah. and I think that it's not a coincidence that both of them are people who aren't afraid of their bad memories Every shot of Abby in the entire season, Abby is costumed. So we are always looking at Jake's wedding ring. They could, they could have given her like a higher necked shirt and you just see a little bit of a chain. And when it's plot relevant, she pulls it out and looks at it, but we see it all the time. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be built into every time you ever see Abby on screen if it wasn't important. And I think that with Jasper and Maya's iPod, Jasper and his like cutting comments and the drinking and the hostility, like Jasper is not hiding from anything yeah and and so i think that the fact that the two of them understanding what the chip does are the two that are resisting it and it's only again under coercion you know that abby submits and jasper gets away we're already beginning to see the sort of overarching shape of the season kind of gelling around this idea of escape is always really tempting and it is almost never the right choice forcing someone to do something against their will because it's simpler is never the right choice That which real- is ironic
1: in, a, in an episode where we have like 14 gajillion instances of someone tranking right. someone else exactly
0: yeah so much tranking so much <laughs> you for your own good now that we've established there's a box full of <laughs> tranquilizers somewhere that clearly they don't need to worry about being frugal with them even right. though even though Abby's lack of medical supplies after the bombing of Mount Weather was supposed to be a huge plot point but that's right, fine right, right. you know maybe It'll come
1: back around. Maybe there'll be a point in, like, you know, episode fourteen where someone is yes. like,
0: "Give me a trank," and they're like, "We used them all." Yeah. And then
1: like, all fake, like, oh no, we're all screwed. We're, <laughs> we're tranking each
0: other yeah. like, The, the pana <laughs> comes back. They got to take out a gorilla, and it's like, if only I had nine tranquilizers. If only
1: I had gone around knocking out everyone. Like, oh,
0: I regret all this. my choices. Yeah. Like, so before we wrap up, uh, so a, f- a few more things that I really liked in this episode. Watching it again, I I really liked the little interaction between Abby and Jackson that gave us the most backstory about Jackson that we've ever got. And I, all know
1: it's the pain that Jackson was really feeling that led him to the city of light that he couldn't say is that he was in love with Abby. and
0: he <laughs> <gonna be right> <laughs> <in>. <laughs> I mean, obviously, <laughs> that goes without saying. I mean, so they didn't have to make that one. Yeah, like yeah, who wouldn't be? It's Abby but that but i loved that you know i've always loved their relationship and the fact that she knows him so well her saying you know the reason that he became a doctor was to save his mother's life which is which is a very lovely intimate thing to know about somebody you know and yeah and also that we see yet another sort of instance of like okay how does the forgetting thing work you forget people who have died but i loved that little moment where it was like where she's asking again a sort of big metatextual question of like If Jackson became a doctor because of his mother and has now forgotten his mother, who is Jackson? If the thing that defined him is now gone. And, and I think that that's a really nice parallel to what I, what I expect is going to be the fallout on Abby is that Abby is going to have forgotten Jake and that there'll be a sort of a similar kind of a necklace thing, you know, that there was with, with Raven and being confronted, you know, either by Marcus or potentially by Clark, for having forgotten that Jake existed. We've been getting too much of a gentle spotlight shined on Jake's character and existence for that not to turn out to be really important. But So I love that little Jackson moment. Oh, I love that they're still trying to, like, that that Sinclair still gets to be present. He has so yeah. much to do. He had really, I think, like, no lines in the last episode where he was like, you know the third major player in the escape, but they but I like that they kept like they would cut to him like they would we got some good Sinclair reaction shots like he was present in the space and I felt like again yeah. this time that they're reminding us that he is you know he's a factor in this story in a way that I found really nice that they didn't just sort of like forget about him. yeah were there things that you liked? I did. I did like that,
1: that Miller stood up for Bellamy a couple of times. Yeah. I think Miller, like, kind of understands where Bellamy is at. And yeah. maybe that's because of Brian. He's obviously, like, sort of forgiven his boyfriend and, and worked through that thing. And so maybe he recognizes a little bit more what the position that Bellamy is in. And, yeah. and maybe it's just because it's Miller, you know, like, and he right. and he was, like, Bellamy's right-hand man, you know, like, well, exactly. yeah. one and obviously kind of at the beginning of the season. And so maybe, like, that. So I, I did like that, that there was, like, one person in that cave who was, like, it seemed like they were kind of on the fence, you know, like he went yeah. along with everybody else, but he was sort of on the fence. I do think it's really interesting that the conversation that Jaha and Ali were having when Raven was fi- figuring out the wristband thing, you know, I think it's significant that in that conversation, Jaha compared overriding Free Will to, you know, overriding the launch codes that started the apocalypse. I think that was mm-hmm. a really deliberate, like, reference, you know? Yeah. So I think that that's that's interesting in terms of, like, Clearly, we're being set up to see this sort of like contravening of, of choice. you being people being like forced, mm-hmm. of course, into choosing what's quote unquote best for them as being apocalyptic. You know, like yes. that's that yes. is like clearly, clearly like disastrous and wrong. And so, I, you know, and it's again, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't think what they've been doing with choice has been coherent enough over the course of the season or even in this episode to be able to really say much more about it than that right now. But I think that that was really significant.
0: That leads to one of my favorite things I th- I, th- I realized watching this episode that I really loved about where it fits into the placement of the whole season. Ali is resistant to that idea initially. Like It is all Jaha who brings up the idea yeah. of hacking free will. Like, Ali, yeah. Ali is not pushing for that. Ali is not telling him to find a way around it. And, and this comes up before, you know, like when when she and Jaha, I think it's maybe two episodes ago, had that conversation, you know, sort of along similar lines where she says, like, I require active consent. Yeah. And Jaha's like, well, we'll figure something out. So one of the things I'm really... Was sort of surprised by, and I'm really loving that because it feels very carefully built over three seasons. Is the emergence of Jaha as the big bad? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was gonna say I do like, I do really like that. I like. I the really as the bad like guys. that because he begins the show as like an an asshole on the side of good, with very strong relationships with many of our central characters, and this position of authority that, like, even the kids who don't like him, like, there's a, there's a degree of, like, respect or fear, or at least of, like, that he's a visible person, you know, and, and he's friends with Kane and Abby. He's, you know, the father of Clark's best friend. He's not ever likable, but he's clearly, He's one of our people, you know, and the sort of self-sacrificing way that he stays behind, you know, in the first season that then takes a complete sideways turn when he, you know, comes down in season two. And so, you know, and I have and I have no way of knowing at what point any of these sort of decisions were made structurally. But for a viewer, it feels like a really interestingly complex three-dimensional evolution of him going from somebody who's always had sort of a zealot personality, you know, who's always been very rigid and black and white. And now that he is, now he's taken Ali's thing and he's added his own sort <laughs> of, creepy Jaha-ness to it, and so he's, like, out alleying Allie. I a million times prefer Pike to Jaha, which I wouldn't have necessarily thought I would say like at the beginning of the season, you know, or the end of last season, because Pike can be reasoned with, and Antari can be reasoned with. Like, they have things that they want, they have things they're willing to trade, they have things that they're willing to negotiate, they have a, a clear point of view, and you can strike a bargain with somebody like that. And Jaha... Is a fanatic. And so. Yeah, has
1: like a true demagogue.
0: Yeah. He's a true demagogue. And, but he's also the former chancellor. And so he has both a real authority over many of these people, especially in the absence of Pike and Kane and with Abby on his side. There's no one who politically outranks ex-chancellor Jaha left at Arcadia. And that's deliberate, yeah. you know, so combined with the fact that he has his own reasons that are separate from Ali's for why he's carrying out her plan. Like he's he's not just doing what she says anymore like he was at the beginning. He's now in some way he's kind of emerged as the leader and he's manipulating and using Allie well, as a tool. It's interesting
1: it's interesting. It's almost like Allie is is she's technology and she's a tool, right? right. Like she's become right. a tool for him to achieve. So like her objective is make life better. So, you know, like the idea that, that getting everyone into the city of light is better for every, for, for everyone was apparently hers to begin with. Yeah. But it's pretty clear that Allie is simply like her program is simply like, look at the, the sort of situation at hand and calculate what is going to produce, going to result in the least amount of pain for people, right? Like that's her, that's her thing. Right. And it's Jaha who took her, you know, best equals everyone into the city of light period as this kind of like gospel truth that is non-negotiable right and, and and inarguable and that this is and that that is the goal not make life better but yeah. that get everyone in the city of life that yeah. is the goal right so i mean it's interesting that that kind of like you have you have him sort of taking that on and anything like it's very obviously very wrapped up with him for, with like powers like you right know, like right controlling everyone and so he's willing to do things that she wouldn't do. He's willing to sort of like weaponize. Yes. Allie in a way that she would not have weaponized herself because he is able to identify the thing that we need to do to achieve the goal of getting everyone to the city of light is to do this. And he's able somehow to sort of like convince her that this is the best method to go around. Although it's interesting to me, like the idea that you can persuade an AI, you know, like, I I don't know. That's, like i was kind
0: of like huh part of what i hope happens in the culmination of that storyline is is that i like my hope and this could end up being not at all how how it happens but but i i kind of love the idea of of jaha sort of rising as the season's real supervillain in a degree that sort of unites the lesser villains i could see a way this could play out where ali ends up self-destructing or Ali ends up realizing that Jaha, like that her, her ultimate directive is not served by Jaha and her taking a stand against him or killing him or harming him or subverting him or
1: self-destructing or self-destructing or or something
0: like, like like where like I could see him crossing a line past which he is no longer doing what she believes they are doing. And I'm also really into the idea and this could just be wishful thinking of the fact that we know that in episode, I think it's 13, um, Jaha goes to Polis, which could be based in a couple, in a number of different ways. It could be that it's the sort of stage two that they're ominously discussing at the end of the episode is spreading the... City of light chips to grounders just to get more people. It could be because they think they have some way of knowing that's where the second AI is or was or used to be. And they don't know that Clark has it, but he ends up in Polis and, um, which is also where we know, like, not just Murphy, who is totally onto him, but also Pike and Kane. And so I, I'm really into the potential idea of people like Murphy and Antari and Kane and Pike who all have different Wants and needs and pieces of information, but who are, but none of whom benefit from Jaha, you know, raising a zombie grounder army of people with city of light chips that answer to his command, temporarily uniting in service of like against a bigger common enemy in a way that gives Pike the lens into the thing that he's been missing all the time about the grounders. Yeah. But so I feel like there's, there's a lot of potential in. Jaha's ascension as like the one person who is unilaterally ruthless who straight up says like if Raven's body dies but her brain lives in the city of light like I still feel like that I've met my goal yeah and and so so that one track mind kind of ruthlessness which isn't the kind of person which is a little bit how Pike and Ontari have been presented but when you dig a little deeper isn't who they are because they have they have you yeah. know even if it's just themselves, they care about something. And Jaha is is just a, a you know, has become sort of full on fanatic. And so I'm so interested to see where that goes in terms of as that storyline ramps up and as the danger becomes greater and greater, the the beginnings of the little rift between Jaha and Ali is something I'm interested to watch out more for. And also how other characters, allegiances shift when everyone begins to realize that jaha is a bigger threat than anything else we've seen this whole season and how does that sort yeah. of shift how people relate to each other all right we should wrap so up. we should wrap this up um so we'll be back again next week to recap episode 311 nevermore and all of the angsty exorcist raven bottle episode goodness that that entails and the Bellark reunion that Erin so has been waiting to scream about for so long. So long. I'm so it's excited. 12 yeah. years. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. So um, thanks for listening, everybody. And we will see you back next week.
1: Next week. Bye.